0: Hello friends, I'm your host, Sujay, and I welcome you to the third episode of the Meet Stargazers podcast. Our guest today has been a member of the Houston Astronomical Society since 1980. In 2017, she was awarded the Hogue Robinson Award by the International Dark Sky Association for her outstanding work in educating governmental organizations, businesses, and the public about the merits of outdoor lighting control ordinances. In this episode, she shares with us her experiences in Dark Sky Advocacy. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Deborah Moran. Debbie, thanks for taking the time to speak to us, and I'm excited to talk to you about solutions to reduce light pollution.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. Debbie, what brought you to Dark Sky Advocacy, and when did you get started?
1: Well, I was born in West Texas, and that helped me develop a lifelong interest in the sky. Because in the part of West Texas I was born in, it's very flat, very desert-like, and I tell people that all the scenery was in the sky. So my interest in astronomy started as as a little girl. It was after college that I joined the Houston Astronomical Society and became more involved uh, in, in organizational astronomy. When you are a member of an astronomical society, or if you go to various star parties or conventions, one of the common talks that you will hear comes from the International Dark Sky Association. So they were founded in order to get people to use lighting more responsibly, pointing it downward to save the skies, to hopefully, hopefully preserve the view of the stars for future generations. So I, would, I always tell people that the amateur astronomers are, know about this issue because we're educated about it, and often we know about it before anybody else. So I'm not a lighting engineer, but we're trained about this for from, from many years, from an early age uh, or from our early times in astronomy. So that's why we know about this issue.
0: Thanks for sharing your journey with us. Maybe for some of our listeners who are new to astronomy, Uh, and who are new to uh, the topic of light pollution. Could you explain to us what is light pollution?
1: So we would describe light pollution, not as all light, but light used indiscriminately. So that means light that's not pointed at the target that it's supposed to light up. Um, If it's pointed upward into the sky, it has nothing to do with lighting your driveway or your parking lot. And it also can include, as we will discuss later, overly overly bright reflected light and overly white light because that's very harmful both to uh, animals, humans, and also even your night vision at night. So what we consider good lighting is going to differ in a big city. Uh, I am here in Houston, Texas, which is a very large city versus a small town or a rural area.
0: Thanks for giving us that context. It's a nuance that, uh, that we need to understand. Could you tell us if light pollution has negative effects on on human health?
1: Yes, it has extreme negative effects, actually. So our bodies need um, nighttime, and that does not mean zero light, but it means light of a certain quality, which we can discuss a little bit later. But normally, we'd need a warmer light at night. The blue light that we are now starting to use with LED lighting simulates daytime And when the body's exposed to 24 hour daytime, it doesn't do well. So the hormone we need to help us sleep is suppressed. And we may sleep, but it might be a more interrupted sleep. And interestingly enough, the health problems that develop from that are exactly the same pre-existing conditions which make COVID-19 worse. So those kinds of health problems can be overweight because we tend to eat more carbs when we're sleepy or tired, diabetes, There's also mental health problems with uh, depression possibly. If also sometimes mental um, anxieties can increase, people's inhibitions come down. So for instance, even juvenile delinquency is known to be increased with a lack of sleep. And there's also certain cancers which are exacerbated when melatonin in our bodies is suppressed at night. That same melatonin actually keeps those cancers from growing as fast. And that would include hormone-based cancers, such as prostate, breast, and colorectal cancers.
0: You have an e- extensive experience in dark sky advocacy. Could you share with us the principles of good lighting?
1: Well, the principles of good lighting are threefold. It's to con- what you want to do is decrease glare, and that could be done three ways. One is shielding the light source just like you might use a lampshade inside your home. You don't just stare at bare light bulbs in your house. Uh, When you shield the light source, the eye does not have to adjust to that very bright light and it can adjust better to a dark environment if it sees only the resultant light from that light source instead of the light bulb or the LEDs themselves. Um, Warmer color also helps the eye to see better at night. We need to split the difference between using the extra sharpness of white light and the better night vision of a warmer light. And then finally, intensity. It turns out you need a certain intensity to see well and to reduce traffic accidents, but it's not as high an intensity as you would think. The eye does not work the same way at night as it does during the day.
0: Thanks for your insights. Could you explain to our listeners what is the LED, what are its characteristics, and what makes it different as a light source compared to other sources of street lighting?
1: Right, so LEDs have both advantages and disadvantages and the important thing is how they are used. LED stands for light emitting diode and it uses a different mechanism for creating light. It uses a a semiconductor and it's made out of gallium, aluminum and arsenide. And the movement of electrons is what creates the light. And the wonderful thing about LEDs is that they create almost pure light with very little heat as opposed to our previous light sources, which maybe 10 to 20% was light production and the rest was heat. This is why you can use a much lower wattage LED for a brighter light than our previous light source. So in that way, they're wonderful. But I heard a talk a number of years ago um, from a member of the International Dark Sky Association. And his worry was that when we started to use LEDs and street lights, we would choose too white a light. And the reason for that was at the time, it was um, less expensive to make a whiter LED. You have to add something to it to warm its color. And um, the problem with that is the white light simulates daytime. The other problem with LEDs is that unlike our previous light sources, which are more diffuse, they are highly directional, almost like a laser light. So one LED will send out a small pencil of light and it's very concentrated. So anytime you're looking directly at LED, it's extraordinarily bright. I call it glare on steroids. We used to think the old mercury vapor lights were the big, we would call them glare bombs in the astronomy world. They looked mild to me compared to our new LED lighting that was starting to come up in Houston. So because of that high directionality and the extra short wavelength light that's common in LEDs, this has become a new problem for us, but it can be mitigated.
0: Which types of LED are acceptable for street lighting
1: and which are not? Well, officially, the International Dark Sky Association and the American Medical Association have recommended that cities use a color of light that's 3000K, and that's the color of the old halogen bulbs, which is a warm white. It's actually considerably considerably lighter than the old uh, amber light we used. Or down to amber. And we may use different colors for different purposes. So, a warm white might be appropriate on a major street where you have a lot of traffic mixing with pedestrians. But where people sleep and where there's low traffic, you actually want the lowest blue light possible. And that would be closer to our old amber color. That is still a little bit more expensive. So, the next best thing is a warm white, such as a 2700K. And I can explain those Kelvin ratings later, but at a very low intensity.
0: Thank you. Can dimming improve the quality of lighting?
1: Right. So dimming can improve the quality as we see it at night by not creating as high a contrast with the dark background. So I had gathered some studies on dimming, which showed that you can dim an LED light often 50 percent compared to its original wattage, but it won't appear 50 percent as bright. It will appear 70 percent as bright. The reason is, is that as you dim the light, the glare hitting your eyes is reduced. When that glare is reduced, your eye is able to better perceive the light that hits the street and it perceives it as brighter than if there's a lot of glare in your eyes. So as you dim a light, the contrast with the dark background is less and you may actually perceive more continuity on the street between street lights. I have a picture on my website, which we can discuss later, which shows the same poles and shows that effect.
0: That's a good segue into the next question, which perhaps you have already answered partially. What is glare? Could you explain to us the concept of glare?
1: So glare is basically scattered light and um, or direct light hitting your eyes. Either one can create glare. The shorter wavelength is in the bluer colors of LEDs or, or light, so the bluer white, the cool whites, Um, what we would call the cool whites in terms of character, not in terms of Kelvin rating, they actually have a higher number. So for instance, if you go to the store and buy a daylight bulb, it's 5,000 K. What that means though, is there's a fairly large component of blue light mixing in to create that color of white. Blue light is a shorter wavelength light. Shorter wavelengths scatter more in the atmosphere. And also when they hit your eye, they scatter more inside your eye. What this does is it creates a phenomenon called veiling luminance. It's the hazy effect you might see if you're looking directly at a light source around it, which obscures what you're trying to look at. So to the degree that you can reduce glare, you will see what you're trying to look at much better.
0: Thanks for that valuable explanation. So that's a very nice transition into the next question. Could you explain to our listeners the concept of correlated color temperature, CCT?
1: Right. So when you go to the store and shop for lighting, you will see a CCT, which is correlated color temperature rating on the box. And it's measured in de- degrees Kelvin. And just to give you some benchmarks, 5000K would be labeled a daylight bulb. 2700K is a, the standard soft white light bulb or similar to the old incandescent bulbs we used to use in our homes. 2,200 K uh, is more similar to amber light, more like the old high pressure sodium bulbs outside uh, that were at present in many cities. And um, then there's everything in between. 3,000 K is a, just a slightly whiter, warm white, but about the color of a halogen bulb. So the K stands for degrees Kelvin. It has nothing to do with how hot the light bulb is to the touch. It's describing a color, um, it's actually a black body Uh, number. But one way to look at it is if you were to heat a piece of iron up to that temperature, what color would it glow? So um, the lower temperature iron will glow more red. And if you heat it to a higher temperature, it will glow more bluish white. So that's the way it's using temperature to describe a color.
0: Thanks for such a digestible explanation. So which light is the most is, is the most comfortable to look at? And how can we reduce glare?
1: So if you take the same wattage of light bulbs and present it in different colors, the blue or white light bulbs will be perceived as higher glare. We have a picture of that on my website, which we can discuss later. Um, So even color itself creates glare. And again, that's because the shorter wavelength light scatters more. Uh, To give you a comparison, blue light scatters 10 times more than red light does. That is why the sky is blue. The sun puts out all wavelengths, but it's the blue light rays that scatter the most, and that's the color that reaches our eyes as a sky color. It's the same phenomenon that creates glare. So for that reason, some large cities, uh, especially in Europe, but also starting now in the United States, are choosing the warmer whites for their major streets instead of the bluer whites. You You get virtually the same visibility, but a lot less glare that way.
0: Thanks for such a lovely explanation. Why is white light not natural?
1: So white light is very natural during the daytime. It is not natural at nighttime. So our bodies evolved under a naturally reddening light at night. So what happens when the sun sets? It reddens, the light reddens around us. And the only light that we use for millennia was firelight, which is also a warmer color. So as light as the blue frequency light disappears when day turns to night, that's the signal to our bodies to uh, reduce cortisol and increase melatonin. And it signals our bodies to rest and to sleep. So a lot of cities will say, well, isn't the wider light that's natural, it's like sunlight. We actually need that during the day to regulate our circadian rhythm. So just as much as you want to avoid it at night, you actually want to partake of it during the day. And now architects are starting to recognize that. We now actually have variable indoor bulbs, which might start out whiter. In fact, I use one in my house. I turn on the white color in the morning and mix it with daylight. And the same bulb can now become a warmer white at night and it can even become a half bright amber. One of my favorite bulbs use indoors. The same thing applies to outdoors. Our our eyes um, need the warmer light to see as well. I should mention one thing. Some engineers will say, well, don't we want to keep drivers awake at night? And we want to do two things. We might want to use a little bit more high frequency light. It's going to be heresy a little bit to keep drivers awake. But if you overdo that, then they're dealing with uh, glare and discomfort the whole time they're driving. In a big city like Houston, it's not just driving through that for a mile. You may be driving that through that for 30 or 40 miles at a time. And you also don't want drivers fighting that glare for mile after mile. So again, you want to split the difference.
0: Thanks, Debbie. What is the correlated color temperature, CCT, for streetlights?
1: So in a residential area, the lower blue, the better. So the ambers are truly low blue, they are currently still a little bit more expensive than a very subdued warm white. So that would be the next best if you're in a very large city that can't afford the amber light. I think at this point, the amount of light you get per watt in all LEDs, including amber, is now definitely at the point where you would save money compared to your older lighting, even if you use amber light. So in residential areas, I would not recommend more than 2,700K. Some of the lighting engineers advising us have said they're using very low level 2,700K light in California. And now they've started to add amber as the cost has come down. But their light level is so low, it's about one third of the wattage that we use here in Houston with an even wider light. So they're able to use it at a very low level. The other thing is I recently heard an Illuminating Engineering Society webinar, and they showed a curve showing that from no light to some light, you, you drop auto accidents quite a bit or auto pedestrian accidents, but at still a relatively low level of light, that completely levels off. And as you increase light, there's actually a point where the accidents increase again from glare and distraction. And that current level of light is what the Illuminating Engineering Society is recommending in its current road wage guidelines. So if you only meet those guidelines, you won't be overly increasing light pollution. But if you double those, as many cities do, then you have a real problem and you are not gaining any accident reduction from that point. So we just advocate using enough light, but not too much light.
0: So the recommendation expressed in correlated color temperature would be lower than 2,700 Kelvin. Is that right?
1: Right. residential areas, um, our engineers are saying at this point, they believe you see virtually as well in 2,700K light as in 4,000K light, which so many cities in the United States are still using. They said, although they've done cities in 3,000K in the past, as the lighting has gotten better, right now they're recommending 2,700K even on the most major streets.
0: Okay, thank you. Does light pollution affect trees and plants?
1: Yes, it affects trees and plants. Uh, just the way it affects people, it can decrease pollination, which actually comes from animals, for one thing. And I think we have a question that we will discuss that in a little bit more detail later. Trees and plants also have circadian function. In the case of trees, they judge um, when to drop their leaves by the relative... Length of day versus night. So, if you have a artificial light near a tree, it no longer senses that decrease in the length of daytime as winter approaches, and it may drop its leaves late. And this can reduce reproduction rates. The same thing happens with animals. Um, some animals are, especially nocturnal animals, decrease their reproduction due to ad- adverse effects on them.
0: So, could you expand on? Uh the effect uh, of light pollution on pollination?
1: So there's daytime pollinators and there's also nighttime pollinators. So there there was a study in Switzerland in which they compared a dark field to a white LED lit field and moths do a lot of that nighttime pollination. In the white lit fields, they counted 62% fewer pollinators. So it doesn't eliminate pollination, it just dramatically reduces it.
0: Could you share with us the harmful effects of light pollution on sea turtles?
1: Yeah, Sea turtles are one of the most affected animals for their breeding because the mother sea turtles lay their eggs on the beach and are not present when the baby sea turtles are born. Their mission as soon as they're born, as soon as they pop out of the sand, is to get to the ocean as soon as they can. If they don't do it fairly quickly, they're vulnerable to predators. And the way they find the ocean has been through moonlight or maybe sunset light on the waves of the ocean. If there's a populated beach and there's a lot of artificial light, they often will go the wrong way. In fact, I have a slide of sea turtle tracks where they're just going around in circles or they're going toward the city instead of the ocean. And then they often get picked up by a predatory bird before they reach the ocean, which reduces their numbers. There are fixes for sea turtles um, and communities that have sea turtles There's a very amber light that they can install which will not confuse the sea turtles and they'll head to the ocean as expected.
0: Thanks for the explanation. Does light pollution affect bird migration?
1: Right, Light pollution is a biggie for bird migration. I'm in one of the three cities in in the United States which has the worst effect, kills the most birds, and those three cities are Chicago, Dallas, and Houston. And the reason is is they are three very brightly lit cities that are directly on one of the major migratory paths. The biggest problem is for songbirds and seed birds. They hit buildings, so in the case of migratory birds, it's not only the street lighting, which will attract them to the cities in the first place and often hold them there instead of uh, continuing on their mission. It can also be interior light and tall buildings, which they are attracted to and they smash into buildings. So it is now estimated that that between 100 million and a billion uh, migratory birds die each year, either smashing into buildings or flying around bright light to exhaustion and then not being able to take off again and becoming vulnerable to predators. I don't know if there's a perfect fix for that, but there are lights out campaigns all over the United States, I'm sure in Europe, that specifically during those bird migratory periods, to try to reduce um, outdoor lighting as much as possible. It's not all year long, but if we can turn off any unnecessary lights during that period of time, it'll reduce their attraction to the cities and uh, hopefully more of them will survive and make it the rest of the way on their path.
0: Maybe continuing along that line, uh, does light pollution affect bats?
1: Yes, it does affect bats. It's a little bit different from, from species to species. But um, I was just reading that urban bats do have some problems with white light, but that's mitigated some if there's a lot of trees around. They do a little bit better. They may go ahead and continue feeding if they feel like they're protected by trees. Some bats won't fly out there, out of their caves or under bridges or wherever they're, they're resting at all if there's white light outside. Uh, we have seen that there are a few European cities in, in the Netherlands and in Britain, which have actually installed red lights on on a, what they feel are the roots uh, that the bird that the bats fly to go ahead and, and do their eating every night. that definitely solves the problem. You'd probably see bats in red lights and zoos and aquariums also and um, so there's a lot we can do to help bats without uh, foregoing our ability to see at night.
0: Could you share with us uh, the reason behind uh, the grasshopper invasion of uh, Las Vegas?
1: Right, so I figure if all else fails, just show people the grasshopper invasion videos that are all over YouTube. Maybe the yuck factor will hopefully prevent people from using white light. So what happens is every once in a while, there are excessive rains in the desert around Las Vegas. And um, what you get is a huge bumper crop of grasshoppers. Now Las Vegas has this one pyramid building, which has this huge white beacon, which shoots into the sky. And the grasshoppers were zeroing in on that to find Las Vegas and swarming around every white light they could find, which is plentiful on the Las Vegas strip. Um, I looked um, far and wide because I wanted to see if anyone had uh, created a video which had a white light and an amber light in the same field. And I found one, there was an amateur video. And just for two seconds, she pans upwards and there's a white LED light right next to an amber, older high pressure sodium light. All of the grasshoppers are swarming the white light. They're completely ignoring the amber light. What I like about the video, which is on our website is it makes the point that if you don't want to attract the grasshoppers to your home, to use a warmer or more amber light. And this is true of many insects that they are attracted to a a whiter color It actually turns out the warmer LEDs almost outdo bug lights, the very yellow lights. Uh, But again, wherever you're sleeping, we recommend the most warm light, lowest blue you can use. But if you want to keep insects away from swarming your house, uh, do not use the whiter lights.
0: Thank you. What have your main challenges been in advocating for reduction in light pollution?
1: Well, every advocate knows that we are fighting something that seems intuitive so it's intuitive to people to think that the more light they see in the in their field of view the better they're seeing and it doesn't work that way at night we astronomers know that we spend time our time dark adapting we use red flashlights we know we actually see better in the dark that way we don't really do that for driving that's a little bit different situation but it's very hard to get people to accept that if you shield the view of, of the actual light bulb, to them it looks like all of a sudden 90% of the light is gone. And then they think I must not be seeing well. You literally have to take people one by one outside, have them hold up their hand to shield a bulb and all of a sudden things that they were not seeing show up and it's instant. It's not that your pupil is shrunk and it's expanding. That takes about 30 minutes to do. It's that the eye cannot see very bright light and very dark and dimmer areas at the same time It can only see one at a time. So as soon as you get the brightest light out of your field of view, all of a sudden all sorts of other areas come up. You can try that yourself. Just go to a neighbor's house or your own if you have a very bright light, stand opposite, hold up your hand, block, block the light, and instantly areas will come out. So again, the challenge is having people understand this. And one of the uh, the things I thought about is why did people put up very bright light in the first place? And it finally occurred to me that the reason is, is they feel they have been taught to do that, that that is what will best protect them from crime and will help them best see their surroundings. I personally feel that this uh, fight would go a lot better if we had the help of law enforcement on our side. I do believe that people will believe all of these same concepts if they hear it from a policeman rather than if they hear it from an environmentalist. Because I think the implication in their minds is that I am being asked to do something altruistic. And in doing that, I'm sacrificing something for myself. Our message is that nothing could be farther from the truth, that you actually see better with our light. But you have to show people not only what they can see, you have to show them what they're not seeing because of a bright light. Once they see that, they can't unsee it as a presenter once said, i've had I took someone out for five minutes and she said, "Oh my gosh, Debbie, you're right. You've created a monster. You're exactly right. Every place I see a light bulb, I can't see under the light. Every place I don't see the light bulb, I see everything. That's the way it works, and it saves the sky and our health.
0: Debbie, could you please tell us what are the common myths and misconceptions about good lighting?"
1: Well, I would say one of the most important misconceptions, is that you can't have adequate light and protect the night sky and protect health. And uh, what we talk about in the big cities is not the same things what we talk about at the dark sky rural areas, where you really not only using better light, you're using less light entirely. In a city, we know we're never going to see the Milky Way sprawling across a, a Houston sky or a Chicago sky. Although I understand and from a man who grew up in the south side of Chicago, that when he was young, you could see the Milky Way. We're probably not going to get back to that, but what we can do is we can dramatically shorten the drive outside of the city to see a dark sky. If every light is pointed downward, is warmer, is shielded, and is not overly intense. So we can have what we need in the cities without sacrificing what we need in the surrounding areas.
0: That's a lovely ambition. I want to live in that city.
1: Tucson. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tucson, yeah. Debbie, could you please share with us the benchmarks of good lighting that you have come across in your work of dark sky advocacy?
1: Right. So the um, the very first city in the United States to first install white lighting and then decide that was not a good idea was Davis, California. And they were fortunate to have one of the premier lighting engineers in the country, James Benya, as a resident there. So a number of uh, the residents protested and he tested everything in between what the city was using and went used different uh, warmths of light and different brightnesses. And what they found was as they went warmer and fainter, the approval rating went up among citizens. They felt more and more comfortable and that they could see more easily at night. Since then, a number of cities have moved also toward warmer lighting. And I'd like to talk about two different situations. Uh, One of them would be Flagstaff, Arizona. Flagstaff has a major astronomical observatory outside of it, only six miles away from a city of over 100,000 people. Now they're using a special case of LED called narrow band amber. And it may not be one that everyone would use everywhere. It's more expensive. It only uses a few frequencies of amber light, but it allows everyone an even wash of light. It allows everyone to see very well inside the city. And then at the observatory, it allows them not only to have less light coming from the city, but just a few frequencies that they could actually filter out. That would be purely from the sky point of view, the very best light. However, it is more expensive and may not be the most practical for widespread use. So the other options, there's something called a PC Amber, which is a 2200K. It's a little bit broader based, probably has more pleasant look to it to most people. And that's an ideal choice for most uh, residential areas. And um, for very large cities with high traffic, A 2700K might allow a little bit better acuity, especially for peripheral vision to see uh, pedestrians approaching the street. And I'm thinking that maybe the absolute ideal for astronomy won't get the widespread support, but something that's much better than what cities are doing now could get that. And that would probably be a mix of 2700K light at a sane intensity that allows you to see but is not overlit on the major streets And then either a very low level 2,700K in the residential areas or an amber as the cities can afford it. I think that splits the difference. We end up with probably better visibility than we had before without increasing light pollution. So, for instance, Tucson, which also is near Kitt Peak National Observatory, actually used 3,000K throughout which now we would consider on the white side and maybe a little bit more difficult to live with in residential areas. But they use it at a very low level and they install dimmers so that overnight you can turn it down quite a bit. It's amazing how little light you need to actually tell whether someone's around you to see your surroundings. And they were actually able to reduce light pollution compared to an amber light, which would normally reduce it better because it was so well controlled and it was used at such a good level. The engineer there said if he were to do it again, he would now choose 2700K. But it is possible if you use it uh, very judiciously. The other thing that Tucson does that Houston does not do is they also control private lighting. So everyone is encouraged to use a warmer light pointed downward. And I, my favorite examples on my website are Tucson and Houston from the air versus Houston, Tucson and Houston from the ground. And you can see that Tucson, which is so much less light polluted, actually has far better visibility on the ground than Houston has.
0: Can you explain the resources that you have consolidated on your website, Softlight Houston, that could be useful to other dark sky advocates? And how should other dark sky advocates use these resources effectively?
1: So I uh, developed softlighthouston.com to be specifically targeted to the average person. There are many websites targeted to the advocate that may be a little bit harder for the average person to use. So I wanted something with just two pages that was easy to navigate for the average person who's not an astronomer. And I beta tested this on my mom. So the enter button takes you directly to pictures. We start out with the gallery because I firmly believe a picture is worth a thousand words. And over time I've collected photos of warmer LED lighting that's well shielded versus higher glare lighting. So there's a lot of pairs of photos of, uh, for instance, a street that's lit with glare versus a street that's lit softly with warm LED light. And we have that with sports stadiums and gas stations. There's just a very few, maybe only five examples in all of Houston of businesses using warm LED light effectively. In every case, you can look directly at the LEDs without pain, and you see an even wash of light on the ground. You see very well underneath. Uh, In the cases of all of our white LED lights, it's painful to catch even a glimpse of the LEDs directly. And Houston is full of direct views of LEDs. So um, ironically, as much light as we have, we probably use four to five times as much light as is necessary to light Houston effectively. Our uh, city actually looks very dark when you're driving around it, constantly hitting white lights on your eyes and yet the streets look dark. So that's that's our message. So first we start out with pictures and I find usually just a glance at the pictures immediately convinces people. Then we have an education page which explains some of the concepts I've explained to you today. And you can see, for instance, the four light bulbs that are all the same wattage and how the warmer white is a lot easier to look at. A lot of people, when they first start putting overly bright light in their city, it's mixed in with older, warmer lights. And they don't understand from one light what, how that's going to translate to when your entire city is using white light and how much more painful it is. So we try to get that across. And then the other thing that's extremely important is how to buy the lighting. We still have a major problem but the lighting industry has not helped us. Unfortunately, I believe there's a dis- business disincentive to creating really lighting that you can see with uh, because LEDs have great longevity. They're expected to last maybe 15 or 20 years. Um, I know there are many products where there is planned obsolescence. If you put in a high glare light, it creates more dark areas around it and people perceive the need to buy ever more lights. This is actually good if you're selling light, it's not so good if you're consuming light. So we need the educated consumer who will demand and ask for shielded warm light. We also have a lamp demonstration that we use. I have one of them right next to me. And this lamp, I was alerted to it by a non-astronomer friend, the same one who said, I created a monster when I took her around outside the sea lights. And she told me a few months later, you must get this lamp. It has, five different colors of white from a very blue white to a warmer white and seven different intensity levels. And it has a gooseneck so you can infinitely tilt it. It allows you to show everything from high glare security lighting to something that resembles a street light. And the way I use it is very important. I use two figures under it, one directly under and one about uh, 20 inches or so behind because it's actually the figure behind is what changes dramatically when you change the the amount of glare. It proves that you can use the lowest level and the warmest light without glare and see both figures better than the highest level with the blue light and a little bit of glare. So it shows that less light you see better, but people don't believe that until you show them physically. And one last thing, I would like to mention uh, the idea of three of our members of our astronomy society here. Uh, Jim King had the idea of filming somebody at a school simply passing from left to right. It's a 20-second video. She is going from in front of a bank of uh, warm lights under an overhang, in front of a very bright white security light. It looks like there's two lights. There's actually only one. And then she comes out the other side to shielded light again. She almost disappears in front of the white security lighting. We find that's an extremely effective tool in our talks. Because people can see for themselves the person disappearing as soon as they have glare in their field of vision.
0: What do you think needs to change going forward? What are the improvements that could be brought about to further reduce light pollution?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the problems is that people buy bright lighting because they believe they've been taught that that is what will protect them best by the people in charge of their safety. And when I've spoken with police officers, I find often they are not familiar with how lighting works to the eye. So I've educated, uh, the police chief here is actually pretty supportive. He's from California, which uses lighting responsibly. But when he has had me contact police officers to make changes, I have found they know nothing about glare and how the eye sees with light. I would love to see an education program designed by one of the centers such as the California uh, Lighting Technology Center, which teaches lighting engineers made for police officers, which can be distributed to them plus a very brief demonstration that they can do for their audiences so that now we have the people in charge of people's security also teaching them that when you reduce glare, you see best. We do have on our website a sentence like that that was changed in our Berkeley Prevention Brochure, but we still don't have a concerted education program coming from the police. The other thing I think we need is just more pictures of what good quality lighting looks like, not just diagrams, but um, because it's very convincing. No one doesn't like a good quality, soft, warm LED light. They're not afraid of it. They can see, they can see well. And then the last thing I think is how we label and display lighting. Um, Dark sky lighting probably needs a label added to it that mentions that it is a glare free light so that people understand that this is a light that benefits them and not just the environment. I would love to see it labeled new non-glare design for best visibility. I believe they would sell like hotcakes if we just had that label. I understand it would also fix the other problem, which is that not many can be found in the stores and a Home Depot rep said, well, they don't sell all that well because labeled as a dark skylight, people think it's a specialty light for rural areas. If it was labeled a glare-free light, then I think people would understand the benefit to themselves. I believe if we can make those three changes, the um, the problem would disappear much faster.
0: Those are some great recommendations. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it useful. Debbie is one of the strongest defenders of dark skies and has been recognized as a pioneer in outdoor lighting reform. You can find a link to her website in the show notes. If you liked this episode, please consider buying me a coffee. You can find a link to my Buy Me A Coffee page at the bottom of the show notes.